It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines in Ukraine as the situation in Bakhmut worsens. Analyze the fringe Russian fighters who claimed responsibility for raiding border villages in Russia's Bryansk Oblast. And we get the view from China as Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, visits Beijing. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 3rd of March, one year and seven days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, our China correspondent, Sophia Yan, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Joe for the latest updates from the front lines. Hi, folks, and hi, David. I think there's only one thing to really speak about at the moment, and that is the kind of the possible fall of Bakhmut after eight months of really, really brutal and bloody fighting. Bakhmut itself is a pretty insignificant town in the Donetsk region of the Donbass, but it has been at the centre of this eight-long-month push by the Russian mercenaries in the Wagner Group. And what we've heard, and I will kind of emphasise it, I'm in Brussels. I am not on the ground. And to be fair, it's not a place that I think anyone would want to be, even kind of the brave and proud Ukrainian soldiers fighting there, because it has been very, very hairy for months. So what we have is Yevgeny Prigozhin, he's Wagner's founder, and he has claimed that the, the city is close to encirclement. And what we've heard, and so I was flicking for a few kind of Russian military bloggers on Telegram uh, this morning, and it seems as if the fighting has finally kind of reached the point where the Russian mercenaries, whether they've got any sort of actual Russian military presence there as well, are close to the, the, the highway, which was known as the only route out of Bakhmut and the only route in to Shazif Yar. And you, you, you'd remember that name for our regular listeners because uh, 
Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent, on his last trip to Ukraine, spent a few days there making sense of what was happening and going on. And actually now that road looks like it's closed off. And so I think to start, I really think the eight-month fight for Bakhmut, um, whether it has fallen or it's about to fall or it could fall in the coming days, demonstrates Russia's potential to actually launch offensives elsewhere. It's taken them this long and they have lost maybe tens of thousands of men trying to capture a single town and uh, say Natalia's has sent us over a message questioning my insignificance of it. Uh, I'm sure for the 70,000 people that used to live in Bakhmut, it's now much less because it's been literally blown smithereens and it's highly, highly dangerous to just live in there. But there are sort of people who have stayed and who don't want to leave for their own various reasons or simply because they... But it holds little kind of strategic value for the Russian offensive in the Donbass other than it is home to a salt and gypsum mine that I'm sure Yevhenny Prigozhin would like to get his hands on. But yeah, so back back to that. So Yevgeny Prigozhin posed in sort of military fatigues on top of a roof somewhere we believe to be near Bakhmut, posted a video today onto the Telegram messaging app and he said, look, units of the private military company Wagner have practically surrounded Bakhmut. Only one route out is left. The pincers are closing. And so, as I mentioned, that road is to Chasif Yar, which is about seven miles to the west. And it was considered a real lifeline and supply route for the Ukrainian fighters basically clinging on and defending Bakhmut. That's where the resupplies would come in. And they were expending kind of great amounts of artillery, great amounts of ammo. There was a, there was a, a brilliant video posted the other day of a what we believe to be a Ukrainian fighter in a trench outside, well, just on the outskirts of Bakhmut. And he was literally firing off AK-47 rounds, reloading and reloading and reloading. He was really rushing through this, trying to hit kind of Russians. Cause it, and he had a, a kind of a little sidekick who was doing the deliveries for him. Because um, as we know, Wagner has largely used convict recruits to take out Russian prisons and murderers, rapists, thieves, who have been given reprieves to basically, if they agree to go and fight for Wagner. And they have been assaulting Ukrainian defensive positions in these human waves, where literally they would be sent over in groups of tens, twenties, basically World War One-style tactics, hoping to overcome overcome kind of the Ukrainian defensive positions and basically overwhelm them. But the Ukrainians have been very good. They've held on for a long time, and they've been basically in their fortified positions, managed to gun down lots of these troops. That's why there's been such a high casualty rate there but ultimately sometimes too much is too is too much when it comes to manpower and russia have been throwing everything into the so-called meat grinder there and it probably has just come to fruition that the ukrainians have to get out so there's been no official withdrawal we haven't heard from zelensky he often has given messages of saying that we're fighting he's said it's constantly difficult but in the past, when towns have been surrendered, he has said, look, we have left to preserve life and take up better defensive positions. Um, so Reuters has some reporting that suggests that trenches are being built and dug closer to Chativyar, so seven miles to the west, in the bid to basically take up a better tactical defensive position. Um, other reporting has suggested that a Ukrainian drone reconnaissance unit based in back has been ordered to leave. Its commander made clear in a video posted on the Telegram messaging app. And he said, in the middle of the night, 
the Madaya Birds unit received a combat order to immediately leave Bakhmut for a new place of combat operations. And he was he, that was quoted, and his name is Robert Brovdy. Um, so the fight over the city has been the longest single-running battle since Russia launched its invasion. And as I, I mentioned, it's become the uh, known as the meat grinder. And so amid all these reports of a Ukrainian withdrawal, a deputy commander in the Ukrainian National Guard, he told a local radio station that fighting was critical, or the situation was critical, sorry, and fighting was happening around the clock. And he said they, as in the Russians, take no account of their losses in trying to take the city by assault. The task of our forces in Bakhmut is to inflict as many losses on the enemy as possible. Every metre of Ukrainian land costs hundreds of lives to the enemy. We need as much ammunition as possible. There are many more Russians here than we have ammunition to destroy them. So that kind of gives a a slight of picture is they are basically the, the supplies to Bakhmut are probably running out or they simply cannot resupply troops as fast as they need for these kind of Russian human waves and artillery barrages. And so the talk of the tactical withdrawal has been there for weeks. It, I don't think it comes as a shock to many people. President Zelensky's sort of rhetoric around Bakhmut has painted a picture of it getting tougher and tougher and tougher and more desperate for the soldiers there. So as I, I mentioned when I was, was it when I was last on the podcast or on one of my previous sort of appearances, I mentioned that I received a load of NATO briefings and from intelligence pictures. And one thing that sort of NATO intelligence officials had been told by their Ukrainian counterparts that it was worth remaining in Bakhmut because of the significant cost being endured by Russia. So Ukraine believed it was inflicting enough damage to make the pain worthwhile to keep on resisting. But they did say, look, there will be a point where it comes to a head and we simply have to get out for the sake of our own lives. Because the Ukrainians aren't stupid. They, they, they are losing probably hundreds of men in the fight, maybe every week, maybe every day. Maybe in some days it is probably in the hundreds the casualties, whether they're dead or injured and need to be taken away. So, yeah, the Ukrainians can only hold on for so long. And it looks like that moment might have come. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much for that download, Joe. That was that was a lot of information. I mean, I'm just looking at through some of our reporting. Ukrainian forces repelled more than 85 attacks in the five principal sectors of the Bakhmut front line, the general staff of the Ukrainian military said on Friday. So it really gives a sense of just the intensity and the non-stop nature of the battle. And as you said, that the fog of war is incredibly intense. And we're trying to pick up what we can from, from both sides. So thank you very much for that, Joe. Can I go to Sophia Yan, our China correspondent? Sophia, we haven't we haven't heard from you in a very long time. Actually, you, you've been out, you've been covering China, Chinese politics. Could you give us a sense of what you're seeing in regards to to to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Chinese position in the in the past few months? Well, actually, right around the anniversary, the one year anniversary of the invasion, Beijing actually put out a peace statement, an 885 word plan, so to speak. And it, what it was, was really just laying out what they said all year. And it was these 12 points, and it called for things like moving away from Western sanctions, pushed for nuclear facilities to be secured for humanitarian relief, uh, food exports, reconstruction for all these things to be thought about and to be worked on. But it didn't really present any sort of concrete details to achieve a resolution. All this time, Beijing has claimed neutrality. They say they're not on either side of the game, they keep saying that they respect every country's sovereignty. But the big problem with that, of course, is that 
Ukraine and Russia define their sovereignty very, very differently. So it's really a cop-out. Beijing is not taking a stand at all. They also do that, of course, in the same breast as talking about their relationship with Russia, this no-limits friendship, this partnership that Chinese leader Xi Jinping has worked so hard to grow and to maintain. And despite all of this, despite Putin's invasion, despite everything that has happened this year, Xi Jinping and China still refuse to criticize what Russia is doing, what Putin is doing. They spend so much time trying to be careful to toe the line. And that's what you saw again when we rolled around to this one-year anniversary that China was trying so much to stick to the facade that it is totally neutral. So it's been really interesting, you know, that they, they try to stick to their guns on this message, which I'm not sure anyone's really buying anymore. Absolutely. Well, we had James Kilner on the podcast on Wednesday talking about the Central Asian states. And, and his, if I can sort of try and condense his thinking, he, he sort of saw it like China was l- more leaning towards Russia now than it was. And that and the, the sheer gravity of the, of, the, of the economic superpower that is China was dragging the Central Asian states with them. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And also, we know that the P- Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, is in Beijing at the moment. And just wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that visit. How is that being reported in the Chinese media? Well, James definitely made a, a very good point. Central Asia is a fascinating part of the world. It has Soviet history, and it's stuck now between two major countries, China and Russia. So, which side do they lean towards? You know, they've got ties toward Russia. They've got they've got China. You know, they've got China on the other side. This is really hard to manage, and China has pressured Central Asian countries. I mean, it was actually in Kazakhstan ten years ago that Xi Jinping announced his. Belt and Road Program, this big diplomatic effort essentially to to buy to curry favors through money by lending. Uh, we've heard a lot now about debt diplomacy. And so China has been interested in trying to get Central Asian countries on side. This obviously is perhaps an issue with, with Russia because both of these countries want to have influence here. And so I think there's actually not enough attention paid to those countries. You mentioned the visit, Lukashenko leader of Belarus coming over to China. He was in town this week for a couple of days, and he got this great welcome. Beijing really rolled out the red carpet for him. Uh, he even laid a wreath at a monument in Tiananmen Square. This is a very rare move for another country's leader to do in China. And so it's all about the symbolism of what was happening. You know, they put out a joint statement saying they expressed, quote, deep concern over the prolonged armed conflict and looked forward to an, quote, early return to peace in Ukraine. That's very, I mean, those are nice words to hear. Of course, these are things that you would expect world leaders to say. But again, it's not really taking a side. It's not really moving things forward. It's not coming coming up with a solution. It's, there's no proposal made as to how we can come out of where we are now. It was really interesting to see this happen. I mean, this is along the lines of what I think you have to look at. Beijing says one thing, but does another. You know, it says it's neutral, but it has Lukashenko over it doesn't criticize Putin. Even in that peace statement I mentioned, it was very careful. The Chinese government was very careful to not call it an invasion, quote unquote, instead of calling it, quote, the Ukraine crisis. So even in their words, even down to these specific words that they choose to use, they are very careful to try to, again, keep appearances up that they are just in the middle and that they want to see peace in the world. And Sophia, just before we talk about your piece on Taiwanese volunteers in Ukraine, can I ask, do, do, do you get any sense of how Chinese attitudes of, of ordinary people towards towards this war, towards the invasion, have changed? I mean, do, is this something in the media talked about a lot? Or do you get a sense of how ordinary Chinese people feel? For the, large, for the most part, uh, the, the population in China gets 
what's presented in state media, everything that is allowed for people to to be looking at is essentially propaganda. Of course, if you have a VPN, you can bypass what we call the Great Firewall and get possibly foreign news. But this is a very that's a very select part of the population. For the most part, what people are seeing are just what the government wants to present. And all this time, the, the Chinese government has actually been blaming the West. More recently, we've seen the U.S. and other countries warn China against possibly providing military aid to Russia. China hasn't done that so far, as, as far as we know. But apparently, the Biden administration has some... Th- there's something that makes them think this is possible. They haven't revealed exactly what, but this has created this massive war of words between the U.S. and China. And so the Chinese side, what they're putting in state media, what the public is getting is that uh, they're actually accusing the U.S. for, quote, fueling the fire. It's a retort, basically. They're saying that, well, you're the ones who've been, you've been giving Ukraine all these weapons. You can't smear China and shift the blame, stop fanning the flame and fueling the fight with more weaponry. Those are exact words from the Chinese foreign ministry. And so they keep talking about how the West is actually to blame, that NATO's to blame, that this is something that shouldn't be anywhere on the agenda for the U.S. because it involves other countries. You know, China uses this a lot. Don't meddle in other countries' internal affairs. Don't meddle in ours. Don't meddle in other countries. So that kind of falls in what China often says. And so you're seeing that again, China pushing back against the West. And they're using this as an opportunity to keep keep up that sort of anti-American, anti-West sort of uh, message. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Sophia. Before we talk about your piece on Taiwanese volunteers, Natalia, can I come to you? As we said, Dom Nichols did some initial reaction to this yesterday, but you've been looking at it in more detail. What are your thoughts? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. Obviously, what happened yesterday, it's quite extraordinary, even by the standards of what we've been seeing in 12 months. I was saying earlier, if it was confirmed to be true, and we know it, we know now it was to be true. I mean, there are opinions vary about the scale of that attack. This makes it the first Ukrainian cross-border incursion. So that that obviously is, uh, is is quite significant. But opinions vary as to what actually happened. And every reporter covering Ukraine in Russia yesterday had uh, quite an insane day that... Um, Included reading and hearing reports about hostage taking, about several dozens of people kept hostage in a shop, about shots being fired. And at the end of the day, we saw that this was probably was deliberate misinformation from Russian state media and from private media linked to, to law enforcement agencies. What we know at this moment is that there was a group, there were actually two groups of Russian nationals fighting alongside Ukrainian troops who managed to cross the border into southern Russia. They spent a couple of hours there. They filmed a few videos and took a few photographs proving that they did it. Uh, apparently, they shot at a car. Um, official reports say, say that there were two men who were killed. We know, having talked to local residents, that there were indeed casualties in, in one of those villages and one child was injured. Now, that definitely is not the kind of terrorist attack that Vladimir Putin would like to portray it to be. People who've been following the Ukraine war, you know, you could probably see that. What's been happening on, on, the, on the front lines in recent weeks, of course, it's 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 tragic and this horrible but there hasn't been a single major event that would say allow vladimir putin to 
call it a war, to call for a second mobilization, or there wasn't anything for him to be able to rally his people and say, you know, we actually have to be now like really tough on Ukrainians. Now, this one actually allows him to do that because finally there was something that he kept telling Russians about because he was saying, well, we're, we started this war because we think Ukraine is going to invade us, so we have to defend. Um and what I found quite interesting about the story is the fact that people who cross the border are Russian nationals. Some of them have been clearly identified. One of them has a quite a notorious record of being a football hooligan, a far-right activist. These people claimed last year that they were fighting in Ukraine alongside Ukrainian troops, so which, which would make them Ukrainian servicemen. At the, on the other hand, we heard Ukrainian officials yesterday saying that the whole incident was a Russian provocation. And then someone else came out, I think it was a spokesman for Ukraine's military intelligence, who um, tried to make it sound like it was it did not have to do anything with Ukrainian state. He made it sound as if the attack was perpetrated by, quote, the people who are fighting against the Putin regime, and he hailed those Russians for standing up for their own country. Again, it puts it puts U- U- Ukraine in, uh, in a difficult spot because the attack yesterday, of course, it feeds into the propaganda narrative about Kiev attacking Russia. And as we have seen and heard in the past 12 months, Ukraine is not interested in gaining any territory in Russia or making any cross-border incursion. They're obviously b- busy with uh, liberating their own country. So um, that incident, of course, raises too many questions and the implications for it are you know could be quite serious and as we speak I'm just looking at at the wires Vladimir Putin is hosting in uh, an urgent session of the Security Council which could be the time and place for him to announce any big decision concerning this war from another mobilization to I don't know an, another punitive attack on on Ukraine if you like is it fair to say, Natalia, that there are still quite a lot of questions about this incident that we don't know the answer to, that we're you know, still looking? I mean, we had Dom's initial reaction yesterday, your reaction today. I mean, are we, are, is, are we, are, it seems to me like we're sort of, you, you're sort of circling maybe around the idea that these, these people were slightly freelancing or, or, or the Ukrainian idea that this is, this is you know, a, this is a planned operation to sort of give, give the Russian state media what they need to, 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 to sort of take their own rhetoric up a gear. Is that fair? Um, I would say so. The group who, that claimed responsibility for the attack are really murky. When I first heard the name yesterday, I, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. And you know, I've been I've been covering this conflict for as long as it lasted, and I've been covering those two countries for for over a decade now. Again, it's a very small group with very clear far right leanings. Consists of several Russians who moved to Ukraine well before the war. Some of them had fought in eastern Ukraine. Um, well before the full-scale invasion, that group held a press conference last year saying that, you know, hey, we're a, a group of Russian fighters, but we do not operate as a unit. So, I mean, like, we, we have our own whatever ideology community, but a lot of us have been serving in different Ukrainian units now and there. Um Again, of course, like there's the question of intents and purposes and who those people are. Did somebody send them? Was was it a freelance operation? Again, there's the whole day yesterday we've been waiting to see any visuals from the scene, photographs, videos. You know, as as you know, this this war has been so well documented. 
whenever something happens on any part of the front line, you know, you immediately would, would see some footage of, of, of photographs. And this happened at the border. I mean, it's not a remote village in Siberia. The, the capital city is about one hour drive away. So I just personally found it very murky that, you know, we, we spent the whole day trying to find any videos and photographs and there were none. And actually the first pictures that emerged this morning were posted by the FSB, the Russian intelligence agency, showing the two cars that were allegedly fired at by the group, by the Russian, by the Russian fighters, as they described themselves. Um, in one of the videos, the car didn't, you know, you can see something that looks like a dead body in the driver's seat. But that car doesn't appear to display any signs of damage. There are no bullet holes. The other car was clearly shot at. So there's no one sitting there. One thing that I personally found quite dodgy, and I know a lot of colleagues have as well, is the fact that for both cars, we don't see number plates. And in, you know, in one of the shots, you see that the number plate is there, but it, 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 it's conveniently sort of tilting to the side that you don't, you, you don't see what, what it says. So obviously those, those things look incredibly suspicious. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that, Natalia. From one group of volunteers to another, Sophia, you've written a fascinating piece on Taiwanese volunteers who travel to Ukraine to fight for Ukraine. Can you t- talk to us about that? Yeah, I, I had the pleasure to meet two of them. There's only been about 10 Taiwanese over the last year who've uh, gone to Ukraine to fight. And uh, it, it was really interesting what, what they've done. Uh, one of them, this one man, Tony Liu, he's a pork butcher, actually. And the other one, Jack, he was uh, he's originally a barista and runs now a coffee roasting company. But when war broke out, both of them were seeing these images on television and they just felt that they had to do something. Tony actually first went because he wanted to help distribute relief supplies so the seeing the elderly kids uh on tv and he felt well you know i have to try to do something you know this could be us one day basically this is what both of them told me I'm paraphrasing a bit their words but they both had the sentiment that they really wanted to understand what was going on you know between russia and ukraine china taiwan the situation there is not the same as russia and ukraine but there are similarities and one of those which Tony made clear and, and described very well is that these are two places that have a lot of shared ties in history. You know, there are mainland Chinese married to Taiwanese people who live in Taiwan. There are Taiwanese people married to mainland Chinese who live in China. There are families that are split between these two places. And in that sense, there's a very human aspect of what's going on. And he was trying to figure out and to understand better what was happening there because he wanted to see what lessons he could learn and, and take away for his own understanding of what was happening here between mainland China and Taiwan. Now, for Jack Yao, he showed up and was really interested in trying to understand more of a military side, the, more of the military side, uh, just how things worked, basically. Now, now both of them had a, a served in, ta- in Taiwan in the military. It's mandatory conscription for all males. Um, it used to be a year. It dropped down to four months. It's now been more recently extended again to a year because these pressures and these tensions between China aren't going away. And so I thought it was really poignant, you know, Jack said something about, uh, he said to me, you know, we really need to be ready. You know, in Taiwan, we're always talking about whether the U.S. would come to our aid if China invaded. And now that this has happened in Ukraine, well, shouldn't we go there to assist too? If we don't help them now, how can we ask others to do that for us later? So they really had the sense that there was uh, this moment that had occurred and this was in a way ominous for what they thought might happen to their own homeland. 
It was really, it was really a pleasure to meet both of them. They were both really inspiring, and of course, very brave and uh, what they did. And amazingly, neither of them told anybody what they were doing. They didn't tell friends and family what they were doing before they left. They just went. And the details and the extent of what they really did while they were there, those couple of months, those three, four months, they didn't, their closest, the people closest to them in Taiwan didn't know all those details until they came home. And one detail that I'll share that didn't make it into the story is that for, because, of course, we were still dealing with COVID at the time, coming back into Taiwan meant he needed to get a COVID test. He couldn't do that for very obvious reasons. And when he got back here, there was actually a fine was supposed to be assessed. Uh, but he never got it in the mail. So I thought that was, you know, a, kind of a fun little detail about all the things he'd gone through. You know, he showed up back here and was like, well, I'm sorry, but I don't have a test result for you. <laughs> but I belong here and I'd like to go home, you know. So it was really uh, it was really interesting and inspiring to meet them because they were so human and so honest with me about their concerns for what's happening here and what could happen and, and in what ways they thought they could prepare for themselves, for their friends and their families. And also how Taiwan itself could prepare. That's really interesting. Can I can I ask, Sophie, is that is their level of concern and their, their thinking about Ukraine, is that reflected, do you think, in, in the more general population in Taiwan? You know, I think it's it's a really mixed bag. This this tension with China, it's always been there. And in some ways the relationships flipped. Taiwan used to have the strong economy and a stronger military compared to mainland China. Now China over these last couple of years they've really also grown in ways, uh, leaps and bounds. And so the relationship has never been easy between the two. Uh, it's always been complicated. That threat of war has always been there. And for some people, they look at this and they think, and they say, well, it's always been a problem. It's not happened until now. So who's saying that it's going to happen? You know, Other people are saying, we will all cast the point of trying to find a diplomatic solution to this. Look at how China's been so aggressive. And, you know, we are looking almost every day at Chinese warplanes that are coming across the Taiwan Strait. This is not a joke. You know, they're training, they're practicing, they're making very clear what their intention really is. The rhetoric coming out of Beijing, of course, also falling along those lines. But I find that there's a very wide spectrum of how concerned people are. And it could be a way of dealing with it. I mean, this is certainly, uh, it's not really pleasant to think about something like that happening. You know, I uh, have Taiwanese heritage. My family's from here. My my parents immigrated to the U.S. But I still have a lot of extended family here. And so I think about that too. You know, I look at my cousins and if if really we hit a worst case scenario, they're going to be called upon to enlist. So it's it's a really complicated situation yeah some people are definitely more worried than others and i suppose that's maybe the way it was in ukraine too before everything happened well, thank you very much sophia joe can i come to you quickly you've got an, an update from for us from that you're seeing on some of the russian military telegram channels and then we'll go to natalia vasilieva yes so it looks like the russians have managed to shoot down one of their own warplanes in the Donetsk region. So the plane was believed to be flying above Yenikiv, if I pronounce that right, which is about 15 miles inside of occupied Russian territory. It's in between sort of the Donetsk and, and then but up further. It's about 50 miles from Bakhmut, according to Google Maps, if you put the walk sector in. So it could have been used to be in the Battle of Bakhmut, but we don't know that for sure, so I won't dwell on that. But there's been this terrific sort of video that has appeared of this plane in the air 
and a Russian anti sort of air defense system, probably a man pad, uh, so a man operated missile that's fired from the ground. Um, and that's launched up into the air and hits the plane. Sorry, I'm just because I've got the video on as I'm kind of describing it. And yeah, so it's uh, in the area of Yenikiv, um, and it's an Su-34 that was shot down. The crew ejected and are apparently alive, according to the grey zone Russian military bloggers who are connected to Wagner, who are obviously fighting in the Donetsk. And so it's, it wouldn't be the first time a Russian plane has been shot down by their own side. And I, I think it goes to show that, yes... Russia might be on the verge of their first sort of major military victory in, well, God knows how long, but it shows the kind of fragility of their of their forces and their ability to actually launch significant offensives in Ukraine. You can only kind of, yes, I would say that there still is a real lack of communication between all of their sort of axes, whether it be their ground forces, their air force, or their naval force, and they just don't seem to be talking to each other. Um, and as I said, um, well, I will quote from, I can quote from the grey zone, so they're kind of highly sceptical of the actual Russian military and, and support the Wagner group, essentially. I can assume that the plane was shot down by our air defence. However, this would not be the first, not the second, not even the fifth situation with friendly fire in the sky. And I, I wrote about this a, a couple of months ago that, Russia is having a problem where it and seems to be shooting its own planes down. It's just it's just interesting. It's still going with uh, you've got Grazimov, who's the head of Russia's armed forces. He's taken over the war efforts in Ukraine, and, and he still doesn't seem to have things running as smoothly as some people would think. And so, yes, they might be on the verge of taking back, but I still take and summarise that they are really going to struggle to do significant, make significant gains as part of any offensive if they carry on doing things like this and it doesn't bode well for them, then I'll stop that. Thanks very much, Joe, for that update. Natalia, can I come to you just to, just to finish this episode? You've written up a piece for The Telegraph, according to a report from the Russian investigative news site The Project, who believe they found where Vladimir Putin is spending his time during this invasion. Can you tell us about the, this vast guarded country estate? I think it's an open secret that Vladimir Putin has several uh, residences. Some of them are better known, better publicized. Some of the residences he would uh, hold official meetings, journalists would be announced. This one investigates not only the residence as such, but also the, but also a shady Cyprus-based company that Vladimir Putin's friends have reportedly been using to make different payments to buy real estate, including for a renowned Russian gymnast, a 39-year-old Olympic champion, Alina Kabaeva, who has been long rumored to be Vladimir Putin's mistress. The residence that this investigation talks about is called Valdai. It's right in the middle of a forest between Moscow and St. Petersburg. We have heard for a while that Vladimir Putin became even more reclusive and sort of was keeping to himself during the COVID pandemic and, and, and he still does and this is the place where he's been spending most of his time recently. What is quite significant of, uh, about this investigation is the fact that the journalists who have been doing this amazing job, they are previously known for uh, very very thorough, wide-ranging investigations, which were mostly based on database leaks on uh, open source data. Now, this one primarily derived uh, its information from a whistleblower, from someone who reportedly worked 
in a company of uh, one of Putin's best friends who was able to detail how this Cypriot company was run and how different people close to Vladimir Putin, including gymnast Kabayla, would simply show up in the office and say... I would like to buy this apartment in Sochi. I'm saying this is quite significant because this 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 person told the journalists that the reason why they decided to come forward is is the war in Ukraine, and that person apparently was so horrified and felt so terrible and guilty that that he decided to to bring this trove of documents that allowed the, the project to connect the dots between Kabayev and Vladimir Putin. I have to say that the rumors about their relationship have been going around for quite some time. The reporters who conducted this investigation, they were very careful to say that they have yet to meet someone or to talk to someone who would say that they have even seen Putin and Kabayeva together, apart from several official ceremonies which were public. But there is lots of circumstantial evidence that points that she is just not an ordinary Olympic champion. Different property filings and documents discovered by the project suggest that uh, she owns something to the tune of 100 million pounds in real estate, which was bought from the slash funds in Cyprus connected to Vladimir Putin's inner circle. There's also a report of a mansion which was built quite close to Vladimir Putin's residence in Valdai, completed in the style of, of a wooden, a traditional wooden Russian dacha. Another thing that the journals were also, sp- also sp- spotted is a playground which was built on the premises. There were rumors of um, Kabayeva having children with Vladimir Putin that no one has been able to prove so far. The journalists who uh, did this amazing investigation, investigative work, actually say they now know the identities of the children, but they wouldn't make them public just because they're underage and, and they think it would be unethical to do. One thing that was completely astonishing about this piece of work is that we got to see photographs from Vladimir Putin's residence in Valdai. I mean, we knew that it existed, but there were no, there was not a single shot from inside. And some of the interiors that we saw in those photographs are quite astonishing. There was this giant, giant chandelier in the corridor on the ground floor with gems, which looked like rubies. And uh, the source who leaked those photographs to the reporter said that these were actually genuine rubies. There was also another room with something that looked like either chairs made of solid gold or chairs gild like gilded chairs standing sort of around around table with gilded leaves or golden leaves hanging from the ceiling so uh, com- absolutely incredible picture it's you know this is like stuff from from a hollywood movie about some evil masterminds but these appears to be general pictures which which are not they're not 3d visualizations they were actually photos that where you can see builders in in those photographs and but the, the journals report they specifically blurred the faces of those people or even blurred all of the all the figures so that you know those people wouldn't be identifiable and they wouldn't uh face any problems for that uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, qu- quite extraordinary. But again, I-, I should I should repeat myself and say that we have seen so many corruption investigations in Vladimir Putin's inner circle and his own alleged wealth that the fact that there are those slush funds it, it doesn't really strike me as news. I think what really struck me here is that there are people who worked for someone very close to Vladimir Putin and they are now coming out 
with those documents uh, that prove those, those corrupt links. And that's, that's quite significant. Absolutely. Thank you, Natalia. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the pictures now and it's extraordinary. None of these rooms link up to anything. Yes, it's a solid, it's, it's sort of rather disgustingly opulent, isn't it? It's, it's quite something. And if you want to see the pictures of that, I would suggest going to the Telegraph, finding Natalia's story. Uh, the headline is Putin secretly living in Golden Palace he shares with gymnast lover. Thank you very much, Natalia, for that. So we're starting to come to the end of our time together today. So Sophia, Joe and Natalia, can I just ask you for your final thoughts, please? What will you be looking at over the next few days? What, what should our listeners what, do you, what would you like our listeners to understand? Uh, Sophia or Joe, would you like to go first? So uh, there's been a lot of concern over whether or not China might provide Russia with military aid. And I think that's something that many governments are concerned about. There's been a lot, there have been a lot of overtures to Beijing warning China against doing so. And so that's definitely something that's on my list. Of course, that could, uh, that, that's something that, um, well, I, certainly the US and Ukraine wouldn't want to see. You know, that could be something that we see in the headlines over the next weeks. Thank you, Sophia. Joe Barnes. So I would say it's not the next days. It's going to be the next hours. They are really crucial for the future of Bakhmut and the invasion. So I will be carefully watching. I would sort of really look out for President Zelensky's nightly address. That could be the kind of moment that every everything is officially announced. There's a tactical withdrawal from Bakhmut. Um, yeah, really, it's going to be, it'll be a sad and sort of heartbreaking moment for many Ukrainians who have lost family members or have had family members on the front line fighting to protect it for, for so long. But it's, it does look like it is in its sort of last day or even hours before it does eventually fall into Russian hands after so much bloodshed there. So yes, I would look for President Zelensky. He's evening address as a priority if you're looking for the official news on Bakhmut. There's obviously lots of fog of war. We we really don't know. For, for, for days, there's been talk of withdrawals. There's been talk of bolstering Ukrainian forces there. It's really hard to see what is happening unless you are in the military commander's, uh, the soldier's boots, whether you're sitting next to President Zelensky, because ultimately he will, he will be the one that... Uh, conveys that information to the world through his nightly address. So I'd, I'd, that's what I'd really look at if you're looking for the latest and most upstate news on Bakhmut. And I, I'm led to believe that Roland Oliphant is writing a, a, a very long and extensive piece on on its potential fall. So kind of look out for that uh, online this evening and in the newspaper tomorrow morning. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Joe and Sophia. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, would you like the uh, very final words? Well, Vladimir Putin is hosting the Security Council as we speak. As I've said, yesterday's cross-border incursion is the first thing of the kind that we've seen in this conflict so far. What we observed yesterday is very clear attempts by state media to blow this out of proportion, portray it as a major terrorist attack. Of course, it was hugely embarrassing for Russia to get a, this group of uh, Russian freelancers fighting on the side of Ukraine, just bumping into, into this town, posing on the steps of a of a local clinic waving their flag. We, we saw yesterday that Vladimir Putin, in his usual manner, um, he did not rush to the scene. He did make a statement, but he sort of carried on with his schedule. He definitely tried to make it look as if nothing outstanding happened. But again, this Security Council meeting is happening, and if the Kremlin was looking for a pretext to take the war one notch further, whether it calling up more civilians in the army or hitting 
hitting targets in Kiev that it didn't dare to before. This would definitely be the moment, and that would be a... Uh, it would, there would be a coup for Vladimir Putin to explain it to the Russians, saying that, you know, if we don't do it, there will be another village under Ukrainian attack. So I would be very much interesting in um, what the Security Council session will come up with this afternoon. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1 p.m each weekday on Twitter spaces follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on YouTube Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.